parfait. Declan Marin here, joined by Dave Donnelly and a new addition to our team who's come up with a very enjoyable way for us to cover Italia 90 on its 30th anniversary. Turlo Kelly of the Irish Football Chronicles. Thanks for joining us and uh, indeed pitching us the idea for this trip we're about to take over the next, well, about four weeks or so. If you remember our Advent podcasts, which was uh, sort of one a day over 25 days, as you'd imagine. Well, think of it that way, but it's sort of tournament mode. So each match day, we're bringing you a new Italia 90 show in your podcast feeds. It won't be too heavy on nostalgia. It won't be all, oh, do you remember Nessun Dorma? There'll be a lot more to it than that. We'll be going through each game in chronological order as they were played, obviously, and uh, looking at the landscape here in Ireland and, and right around the world as the tournament progressed. They'll be short and sweet too, so you won't have a million podcasts. Uh, I mean, there's already a million podcasts out there, sort of. You're having to work your way through in uh, lockdown. So I imagine these will be sort of handy for, you know, a short run or maybe if, you, if you're going for a longer run, you can keep a few and have the old play next feature working nicely for you. Gentlemen, let's get into it. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to get the sort of what do you remember bit of the podcast out of the way. So we're not doing too much of that right throughout the tournament. Turlock, we'll start with you. Obviously, this is your sort of brainchild. Give us a little bit of your memory of Italian 90. And, and I mean, what age were you when, when this is all going now? Well, alarmingly, I've just discovered I'm the only person on this podcast who actually has any kind of clear, distinct memories of the World Cup. I was nine years old, and by sheer coincidence, I just got into football, sort of around that spring. I had pretty much zero interest in football. And one of my great regrets is that I didn't take any interest in Euro 88, because I was, I was old enough to remember it. I remember the games being on, but just passed me by. So yeah, I, I, I by sheer coincidence, got into football spring 1990 was such a, a neophyte that I didn't even realize there was a World Cup coming up. But if you can imagine, I'm sure you all know that that kind of feeling of when you first sort of fall in love with football, how, how total it is and how beguiling and intoxicating it is. If you combine with that, the fact that the entire country, you know, collectively lost its mind over the World Cup, I, I really had no chance. But yeah, it's my memories of it are of kind of crowded family living rooms watching these games on actually a portable black and white television believe it or not but uh yeah it's it's just a general hysteria i suppose what country um, are you living in <laughs> well i was in ballymon that answers the question yeah we yeah actually yeah some of my memories of the, of the world cup are watching games and simultaneously we were up on the eighth eighth floor and um, watching kind of the the general hysteria that was visible around around the town. I had a kind of a bird's eye view of it all and there were people running out to, to others who were too too nervous to actually watch the game and were kind of reenacting it on the, all the green spaces and their mother or father would run out and tell them what was happening. Um, I remember that during a particular penalty shootout that I'm sure we'll come to. My memories are possibly deceptive as these things often are but still very vivid. Dave, you'd have been around back then. You're a bit older than myself, but you'd have been only a nipper. So what's your memory of it like? You'd have been around. Thank you. I was four at the time. or just turned four. So I have memories of the tournament, but I, I, I'm not sure how many of them are contemporary and how many are kind of filled in afterwards. 
like I, I do remember specific games and things like that, but I do know that my brother had a videotape of Italian 90, which we used to watch every like Saturday morning or whatever. So I don't know how much of that is me watching videotapes and kind of filling in the background in my own head. I think probably a lot of people who weren't ordinarily into football were getting into it as well. So it was kind of an exciting time. Yeah, but for me, I, I fall in the bracket of, there's always a bracket for these things where it's like, you know, you weren't born when this happened. So I, I, I use the you weren't born when Kurt Cobain was alive sort of bracket for people that are younger than me. And, and then the people that are older than me use the you weren't born for Italian 90. But looking back, I suppose, I mean, it's stuff you pick up over the years. There's obviously a change in the footballing landscape after this in that the back pass, which we, Ireland, are largely, uh, you know, credited for, for changing that rule. Uh, the back pass to the goalkeeper has gone on the two points for wins, obviously. But as Dave kind Don't of... give away the goods. <laughs> as Dave kind of alluded to there, it, it really is probably um, one of the greatest cultural influencers in a way. It's, it's a bit global movement of football, I thought. I think for so many first-time teams and so many lasts. And so it's probably probably stands out as that. I mean, you can read essentially infinity amount of books by various sports writers who weren't into football, who got into football through either this World Cup or the next, uh, particularly the US, of course, who were who hugely influenced. So that's, I think it kind of influenced so much of, of what we know as football now. There's a, there's a quote from, I think it was in one of the old uh, independent articles from a historian and, and an author, John Dorney. He describes it as the moment when Irish identity and international football collided. But I think it's bigger than that because I think it's more than just Irish identity. And, and we'll get into that with, with quite a few of the teams in the tournament. But let's get into the background of, I suppose, how Italy were, were awarded the World Cup. Turlock, it would have been a pretty big deal for them. I think the only time that it hosted previously would have been 1930, 34, possibly. And they won that tournament. Uh, but I don't think they were favourites by any means to, to get this tournament, were they? Um, well, there was, there was kind of a real premium on getting the, the right host for this tournament because there'd been such a debacle in 86. Um, Colombia had been due to host the tournament and then it gradually became apparent that Colombia was in no fit state to host anything. If you see Narcos, you might understand why. Um, and so Mexico stepped in. But yeah, there were actually, there were a lot of, it was a time when there was kind of an unofficial alternating between the Americas and Europe for World Cup hosting. And uh, there, so this was pretty much Europe's turn. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of interest, there were a lot of bids submitted, Greece, was one of the more novel ones, and Greece was actually one of the more serious ones. Um, France, Italy, Austria, England, and the USSR all expressed an interest, went through the process, and the last four standing were actually Greece, England, Italy, and the USSR, um, before Greece and England uh, dropped out. So the, there was a vote in Zurich in May 1984 between Italy and the USSR. Italy won that vote pretty clearly, 11-5. Um, but I do think it's one of the kind of great what-ifs you know, the USSR bid was strong, but, you know, you can imagine the kind of chaos that would have been involved in, you know, hosting and carrying on a World Cup in essentially amid the myth, amid the collapse of a country, which essentially is what would have happened in 1990 in, in the USSR. But uh, yeah, I think by and large, it was greeted as a, you know, a logical and welcome, welcome choice. Exactly how beneficial the World Cup actually was for Italy and some of the graft and corruption that went around um, building the stadium and so forth is probably a story for another day, but a very interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to touch a little bit, I suppose, the element of then the USSR essentially boycott the 84 Olympics and, and felt that 
uh, I think it was the day of the vote or the day before, and they mm-hmm. felt uh, to a large degree that this was the reason they hadn't got it. Although Joe Havalange denied it, but uh, I'm not sure how much of what Joe Havalange or, or most FIFA officials at that point uh, had said what you'd believe uh, coming from them. Just to, to really briefly touch on as well the the background of Italy at that time. I mean, they'd had quite the economical boom in the 80s. Uh, they were absolutely flying, loving life. Do either of you know at what point they managed to pay back the debt for this World Cup? I'm going to say 2017. Close enough. It was. I'd say they won't pay it back until 2054. <laughs> it was. It was 2015, as you mentioned, like the the absolute lunacy of of the money put into it. And I mean, looking at a few of the stadiums, the Delhi Alpi for Torino, which has been demolished since. Um, you have stadiums like the San Nicola in in. Barry, which uh, was awarded through absolutely outrageous nepotism, if you look in, into the story further on with that. But that, that I suppose, is a, is a fair background of where Italy was at the time. And, and The San Siro was going now, isn't it? I believe so, yeah, yeah, I believe so. So let's touch next, then, on the teams that qualified. We've got to sort of briefly, and as quickly as possible, run through the, the continents and, and how teams made it there, excluding, of course, Argentina, who were, were the previous winners, and, of course, Italy, the hosts. Maybe we'll start with UEFA first. Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll run through UEFA really quickly because compared to USA 94, you remember that, that kind of classic November 17th, 1993, when all those qualifiers were in the balance, the night Ireland qualified. There's nothing really comparable in 1990. It was all pretty straightforward. The European qualifiers other than Italy were Romania, Sweden, England, USSR, Austria, Netherlands, West Germany, Yugoslavia, Scotland, Spain, Ireland, Belgium, Czechoslovakia. Uh, Dave's going to fill us in on Ireland a bit later, I think. But one interesting thing from Ireland's point of view is that the seedings for this were weighted very heavily towards the previous World Cup. So even though Ireland had come pretty close to, to reaching the semi-finals of Euro 88, they're actually seeded fourth in a group of five. Um, originally, the plan with the qualifiers for Europe was to have a playoff system. But eventually they changed that until it was just a case of the worst second place team missing out. Um, Wales, believe it or not, took that to, I think, took that almost a quarter into some kind of legal process. They needn't have bothered because they, they didn't get near qualifying anyway. Um, the very first qualifier in Europe was Northern Ireland Malta, which actually was played before Euro 88. But again, Northern Ireland didn't really get particularly close to qualifying. Uh, the high profile teams that missed out, I suppose the biggest one would be France. Under, under Michel Platini. Again, very similar to 94. They, they kept getting chances to get back into it and just spunking them away, basically. They drew in Cyprus. They lost in Yugoslavia. They lost in Scotland. They drew with Yugoslavia. They drew with Norway. They were kind of the biggest absentee other than them, Denmark, Poland, Hungary, probably the, the biggest names that missed out. The England qualifying campaign is fairly iconic, I suppose, just for that image of the bloodied Terry Butcher after the friendly after the qualifier against Sweden. But to be honest, England qualified, they actually qualified second in their group, but without conceding a single goal. Again, that group not particularly competitive or or tight. Um, I suppose the only group where there was more than two or three teams in contention was the group USSR qualified out of um, with Austria. Turkey and East Germany kind of pushed them close enough in that group. But uh, other than that, European qualifying, pretty straightforward. 
it's it's good to see that there was a, an original sort of Team 33 in Wales exactly. going all the way and that we're not the only uh, sort of laughing stock with that. I'll quickly skip on to, to Comnibol. I mentioned, obviously, Argentina went straight in, so it kind of left nine teams uh, competing for two places and then a playoff place. So essentially split into three groups, and Brazil and Uruguay were the group leaders with the best records, so they qualified automatically. It should be noted as well that Brazil's round featured the, the infamous incident, the uh, Elmar Canazzo where the Chilean goalkeeper, Roberto Rojas, pretended to be hit with a firework uh, and actually bladed himself like the wrestlers do, uh, <laughs> trying to get the match abandoned uh, so that Chile could, could yeah, automatically. They were 1-0 down, I think it was 20 minutes to go in that game, and they basically needed to beat Brazil. Um, as I said, Uruguay were the other team that qualified. Colombia then were the leaders of the other group and ultimately had to go to a playoff with Israel, which they won over the two legs. And that was uh, a pretty straightforward one as far as South America go. Uh, we still have a few more to get through here. Who wants to jump in with either CAF or uh, FC? As Turlock very, very well uh, sort of summed up there, uh, Europe was quite straightforward. And I think probably the, the thing that would jump out to anybody looking at the um, tournament compared to maybe how it is now is the fact that 13 teams out of 24 qualified directly from Europe. And at the time, there's only 32 countries in Europe. So it wasn't as competitive in Europe as it is now. But uh, around the world also, there was not a huge amount of teams uh, that were able to qualify. Asia only had two automatic spots. It was quite a convoluted system in the end. They had a lot of, um, they had six groups. They went into a final ranking then. And South Korea and United Arab Emirates were the team that got through. South Korea, obviously, they probably been the dominant team in Asia and I think they were largely expected to get in but you know I think probably the one that jumps out at everybody would be the UAE getting in probably a lot of people would be surprised if the United Arab Emirates were even in it considering they're you know they're less a country than more sort of a you know a collection of um of kingdoms if you think it's competitive in Europe now, it's extremely competitive in Asia then. And uh, mm. I think you can see that with the two two qualifiers. In terms of CONCACAF then, you have the, the notable absentees. You essentially make it to every other World Cup in Mexico. Of course, hosted the previous tournament as well. They were, were essentially disqualified as they fielded an overage player in the 88 Olympics, which seems like a really harsh punishment when you look back. Uh, they missed out completely from the tournament. And it's worked out quite well for Costa Rica, who, are, who ended up qualifying along. They had uh, qualified all the way from the first round where essentially the first round is the, the five teams ranked the best in that continent get a bye. So the first round is for the rest of them. And they were due to play Mexico in that second round, but obviously that ruling that banned Mexico happened. So they got through unopposed. They then topped the group in the final round with the uh, top five teams. The US only, uh, man, well, managed to get second, I should say. Not only, I mean, it would have been a great achievement for them. Only one goal in it in the end. They were close enough to qualifying at the top of the US. Uh, Paul Caliguri, who will come up later in this, of course, uh, scores an absolute blinder against Trinidad to see them to Italy. The goal uh, sort of dubbed the, the shot heard around the world, which I don't know if you guys remember. I, I don't really remember a whole lot until you end up looking back. So I don't know if it's as, don't know if it's travelled quite as well, and I don't know if America would have been popular back enough back then, or, or soccer would have been popular enough in America back then to qualify as having anything they done they had done uh, seen around the world. And uh, lastly, then we've got CAF. Yeah, so in Africa, again, there were only two places up for grabs and there were 24 entrants. And there was a, basically a preliminary round that went through then to a group phase where the winners qualified for a playoff. And Libya got into the group phase, but then withdrew after one game. Now, this is the same year they played the Bose Path selection. So I don't know if it was to prepare for that or whatever, for the, for the mighty combined force of Bose and Paths. 
Um, but yeah, there, there was actually, there was a particularly tragic event in, in Group C where um, Samuel Okwaraji died during the Nigerian player during the game against Angola. Actually, a really interested guy, interesting guy. He was a, a qualified lawyer. He played in Yugoslavia and Germany while he was studying. So that was... Um, that was particularly tragic, and Nigeria didn't make it out of the make it out of the group phase. So we wound up with playoffs, two playoffs of Algeria versus Egypt and Cameroon versus Tunisia. Um, absolutely incredible levels of, I guess, interest and support at these games. Between the the four games in that playoff series, the total you know, cumulative crowd was about three hundred thousand people, um, and by far the more notorious of them was Algeria versus Egypt. Um, there'd always been bad blood, not so much political, but more around football in, in that fixture. Um, so the first leg was Algeria nil, Egypt nil, and then Egypt won the second leg one nil. Absolute chaos at full time. The ref was besieged by Algerians. Um, the Egyptian doctor was blinded in one eye by a bottle thrown by allegedly um, Lakhdar Baloumi of, of Algeria. He was actually, I think, convicted in absentia in Egypt after the game and Interpol had a warrant out on him until 2009 when they dropped the case and he could finally leave the country again. So uh, yeah, that was pretty stormy. The other playoff was a lot more straightforward. Cameroon beat Tunisia 3-1 or 3-0 rather on aggregate. So yeah, um, very, very tight, very strong qualifying series. The one, the earlier groups, Egypt's group, group B, there were only 13 goals scored in 12 games. Um, I know Africans felt very short-changed that they only had two places at a time when they felt their football was particularly strong. And I suppose they'd go on to make that case fairly eloquently in the World Cup itself. And Cameroon, I suppose, were only, um, it was only their second World Cup. Uh, they were, their first one was 1982 when they drew all their games, which, not to give too much away, I think in hindsight, maybe for 1990, that might have made them the ideal team. But um, the other one, as you say, Egypt, the most successful team, in African football history, you know, they've always kind of struggled when they got to the World Cup stage. And it's kind of interesting that, yeah, their their, their story, as, we, as we'll find out, was kind of tied up with Ireland. In terms of Cameroon, in the, the FAI's pre-tournament handbook, uh, Jack Charlton kind of kind of tips them to qualify for the for the second round, which is quite brave because they were in a, a, a tough group. But uh, it's it's clear that he's basing this entirely on 1982 and hasn't seen them play since. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, let's, we've got to wrap it up shortly, guys. So let's very quickly get into uh, giving the Irish a bit of time on how they qualified before we just have a quick look over the uh, groups all in all as they stand. So, uh, Dave, do you want to do, do take us through a little bit of, of Ireland and, and their story getting there? Yeah, so in terms of qualifying, Ireland were fairly, um, I suppose, fairly straightforward. We, we always have this kind of idea that everything is a struggle for Ireland, but actually for this tournament, maybe uniquely, we, we qualified quite comfortably behind Spain, uh, 12 points to make games, four points ahead of Hungary, and uh, Northern Ireland and Malta are at the time they seem to be our, our you know perennial bedmates. We always seem to be playing them at the time, but um, Hungary, particularly over the past kind of 30 40 years, they've um, they haven't been quite what they what they used to be, but yeah, no, it's a uh, quite comfortable, I think, from our from an Irish perspective. Nil nil draw with Northern Ireland to defeat Spain wasn't an ideal start, but um. Seemed to kind of pick up our legs along the way, beat Spain at home, beat Malta at home, beat Hungary at home in successive games, uh, then beat 
Northern Ireland 3-0, which kind of sealed sealed qualification. So, you know, it, it was fairly straightforward and probably something that Irish fans, well, obviously not having qualified for tournaments, weren't used to. But I think in the time since, we're probably not used to things going that comfortably when we speak about the 1990s being a golden era in Irish football. It's probably the struggle wasn't quite there. It was actually, you know, a good team playing well and actually getting the results, which... It's an interesting one as well when you think of, as you said, the two games starting off so disastrously. I mean, that would be cause to get rid of a manager and think of the future now. <laughs> like, I mean, sure, Mick McCarthy was kind of similar after, you know what I mean? He'd have gotten through two, two games. games. He was gone, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's funny to kind of think of it that way. But um, obviously, a bit, as you mentioned, some big results in there as well. This is the kind of, I suppose, the start of the idea that it's so hard to beat the Irish. You know what I mean? There's only the one defeat to Spain. The other games all on the road are, are for the most part, draws. And picking up the big win against Spain as well in the group. So let's very quickly then talk about the groups and, and how they're looking, just to jog people's memories a little bit. Group A starts off with Italy, the hosts, Czechoslovakia, Austria, and the United States. Group B, probably one of the most interesting of the lot, actually. Soviet Union always seems to be in these really tough groups at, at this point as well. You've got uh, Argentina, uh, the winners, of course, Soviet Union, Romania, and Cameroon. Uh, group C, you're looking... At, well, obviously one of the big powerhouses of uh, World Cup tournaments, Brazil, with Scotland, Sweden and Costa Rica all in there. Group D, West Germany in there, along with, as Dave mentioned, United Arab Emirates, who I think a lot of people do forget about, Yugoslavia and Colombia there as well. Group E, Spain, Uruguay, Belgium and South Korea. Our very own Group F draws Ireland and England with Netherlands and, and Egypt also following in there. Terlick, you might remember a, a bit more than than any of the rest of us um, thoughts at the time of Group F. How was the Irish reaction to that draw? Yeah, there was a there was a good bit of speculation as to what the F stood for. Um, it, w- it was kind of, I think people were sick of the sight of England and the Netherlands at this point. Um, but at the same time, there was a fair amount of confidence around. Um, I think everyone pretty much anticipated that it would turn out as it did. Because Ireland basically didn't win games clearly and they didn't really they didn't really suffer too many catastrophic or heavy defeats so I think we all knew we were looking at a series of uh, hard-fought nil-nil 1-1 or 1-0 results and what I would say is that Egypt were more or less totally discounted Um, and uh, we'll find out just how just how accurate an assessment that was as we go. It's quite interesting that uh, England actually came second in their group and the winners were Sweden. They were drawn with Brazil, Costa Rica and Scotland. And not to give too much away again, uh, that actually turns out to be one of the the more interesting stories of the tournament. Lads, we're going to leave it there for the time being. Game one of the Italian 90 podcast we're running here is coming out on the 8th of June. So make sure to uh, get in touch with us if if you've enjoyed this, Yvonne anything to say about it you can find us usually uh, at Extra Time News on Twitter and Facebook uh, you can find myself or Dave personally at uh, Deck Mariner at Yes Second Post uh, Ye Second Post sorry Dave I always get this wrong and Turlock it's at 100 Irish Games 100 Irish Games yeah. to get in touch with any of us um, if you're liking them or you want us to, to cover or if we've left anything out you, you, you're welcome to get in touch as well as I said we're going to dive right into uh, the very first game of the tournament in great detail so look out for that podcast coming very soon 